The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity here. We have a very special interview for you today and uh, a lot of you wonder about what's my life like, uh, what's it been like, and all the time we get questions too about how are the younger generations processing everything that we talk about? So you're in for a treat. We got to kill two birds with that one stone today. And today we have Erica Martinson with us today. Erica, there is a rumor going around that we are related. <laughs> yeah, you can't tell. <laughs> is, is there any truth to this rumor? There's some truth. There's there? some truth. <laughs> really? Tell us about that. How do you, how do you process that rumor? <laughs> well, um, I was thinking on, on, my drive over, I was like, what are the stories people would actually like to hear about mm. Chris Martinson? What was it like being his daughter? What was it like growing up in his house? And and it's fun because I can kind of segment my childhood into all these different chapters, mm -hmm. you know? So there's the, the mystic segment where we were living a very different mystic connecticut not, mystic not, connecticut not mystic the the practice not mystic the practice. <laughs> no not yet anyways not yet. <laughs> we foreshadowing yeah for, like yeah a little foreshadowing there um but so there's the yeah the mystic chapter where we were just living the kind of you know american dream mm -hmm. quote unquote and um but i was thinking you know the transition into a very different lifestyle is is where the story really gets interesting sure for me so, anyways all right we'll, we'll backfill with those cool stories but so people have context sure what's your life like today like explain like are you an account executive working in boston selling nike shoes um yeah actually that was <laughs> i tried to go down that route um they didn't like me um because i don't own any clothes that don't have holes in them so I didn't fit in there, but <laughs> no. Um, so I live on a farm in Western Massachusetts. Um, I live in a tiny house that I like to say my partner and I built, but you know, he did 98% of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I helped, mm -hmm. I held the windows, you know, while he was installing them. And I live a just really beautiful, s simple life, you know? Um, there's, we've got cows, we've got sheep on the farm there, we've got chickens, um, we've got a big veggie garden, um, and I feel really lucky that I, obviously, I'm not doing it alone, I've got my partner there, and then there's another couple that lives there with us, and so, um, it's not, it's not a solo operation there. No, you make it sound like the four of you. Every time I've been there, there seems to be like a dozen people. Well, we're <laughs> nestled within a much, you know a more robust community yeah. so there it really is that's one of my favorite things about living there is that you walk outside and there's always some neighbor coming by or you know it feels very like like another era maybe like 70s or 80s or something where the neighborhood kids are just biking by and mm -hmm, one of mm -hmm. them has his fishing pole like he's like trying to balance it as he's biking and uh so it's 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 beautiful and that's honestly my favorite part about it so in many respects you, you're, you're actually living a life that's indistinguishable from the little house in the prairie series well sort yes of. there was some <laughs> foreshadowing there too as <laughs> you know i was deeply obsessed as a child to put it lightly <laughs> <laughs> 
And, you know, I was lucky because my best friends were just as nerdy and obsessed as I was. So mm -hmm. we would dress up in our, you know, little aprons and, you know, overalls and would go outside and just, I mean, we would play for hours and hours and hours and just kind of in this imaginal world, which now is I'm essentially living mm -hmm. as so you, an adult. You have a cow. I do. Do you milk the cow? I do milk the cow. You milk the cow. Although I'm not milking her right now because she's pregnant, so. Okay. There will be milking, though, And later when you in the get year. the milk, what, what do you do with the milk? Well, we um, uh, went through a very deep dive into cheese making last year. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were making, you know, mozzarella and gouda and cheddar. And we're really just How getting into turn the out? whole world. They're so good. Mm -hmm. They're so good. I've never made cheese. Okay, we'll it, have to do that sometime. It sounds difficult. It's not. It's actually way more simple than you think. And huh. it's it's the most amazing, like, tiny little minute differences in the heat of the water or how much rennet you add will create an entirely different cheese. It's the coolest thing. Like I, always, I always thought, like, to go f <laughs> to get a Gouda, a mozzarella, or a, or a cheddar, yeah. there must have been, like, different bacteria or yeast or something involved. But, yeah. No. It's just the processing? It's just the process. And just tiny little differences will create a totally different cheese. And that's where it's tricky because I, you know, I'm learning out of books and off of YouTube. And so uh -huh. it's a gamble every single time. But so far yep. it's paid off. All right. So, so you've made <laughs> cheese. You've raised animals. Do you process your own animals? We do. Yep. So we um, raised pigs last year, which are now in the freezer. And it's just like the most delicious pork I've ever eaten in my life. Um, we do. We've done meat birds. Um, uh, we have a cow who will probably end up in the freezer. Um, this was this was your cow's uh, baby. baby. Yeah. Yes. And that one. I mean, you know, raising your own animals, it's like it's not easy because you really no. do build these relationships with them and you mm -hmm. really love them and and i think that's part of what makes it that much more meaningful when you do actually end up eating them because mm -hmm. it's like there's this actual connection to it that yeah you just have this deeper appreciation for it that you just don't get from you know mcdonald's mm -hmm. hamburger so the tiny home a lot of people dream about that mm -hmm. um, you actually built one um how do you like it i love it i absolutely love it I mean, I feel like I was kind of prepared for it over my life. You know, mm -hmm. we, I grew up going to this island off the coast of Maine where it was, you know, log cabin, no running water, no electricity. Um, so living in a tiny house that does have running water and electricity feels like palatial, you know, <laughs> <laughs> lap well, of luxury. And it sounds like roughing it, but the island in Maine is, is anything but roughing it, yes. even though it doesn't have running water or electricity. Oh my right? God. It's, it's just, it's just a way of living. And so one of those stories from childhood, I remember we were in the midst of one of our many third world experiences here in America where our power was out in Montague, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and it was out for like a five-day stretch. Mm -hmm. And most people are paralyzed, right? They start smelling by day two because they haven't been able to shower and things are happening. And I remember a friend of mine came over. It's pitch dark in our house. There's We have some, some hurricane lanterns lit. Mm -hmm. And you kids are, are busy doing dishes in the sink. And, and he's like, what, what's happening? How did you, you know, what happened? How are you doing dishes? And... So we just did what we did at the island, right? You kids like, okay, yeah. somebody heated up some water. Yeah. You know, you can do that even without a functioning stove, right? Yeah. There's a way to heat water. And you just get a couple of bins. And, but the fact was you were all just doing that. And the dishes were getting done. And it wasn't like a... 
oh, shit. thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a yeah. moment. It was yeah. just happening. Yeah. And that was magic to this person. They were like, oh, my gosh. How, what, you know, it was like they were looking into like a, an advanced culture. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's what's so cool is like getting up, growing up, like learning those like very basic skills. Mm -hmm. It's like when you're when you encounter a problem like that, it's like, oh, I the solution is just in me. You know, there's yeah. not a panic moment of I have to solve this. It's just like, OK, I'll mm -hmm. just go pump some water from the well and whatever, build a fire, whatever. So now in your life, too, you, we mentioned sort of the physical aspects and some animals. Mm -hmm. um, what about, what's your friend group like? Uh, are you an outlier in your friend group of being, living in a tiny home and, and farming? Well, no, I mean, it's, yeah, I do, I definitely live in a subculture that is very different from the mainstream. I was laughing about this the other day with a friend where we were like, I don't think I know a single person my age who is doing the kind of traditional nine to five office job like everybody is either um you know I have a friend who's running rites of passage for teenage boys I have a friend who's um deep into mushroom cultivation and has a mushroom cultivation business and um friends who are farmers and um friends who are really growing into like trades carpentry and electricity electricians and mm -hmm. so but yeah, we were cracking up. We we're like, I literally cannot think of a single person who I'm like close with in my life who's choosing that route. Do you, is that unusual? Do you think? Is this just like a you belong to a unusual subculture or? I th I mean I think so. I'm pretty. So I'll you know this is like sacrilegious in this day and age, but I literally I don't have Wi-Fi in my house. Mm -hmm. I do not own a laptop. Mm -hmm. Um. So I. I'm not super plugged into the mainstream, but I would, you know, guess that it's pretty rare. But I do think that there is, you know, it feels like there's like a, a movement towards that way of life that feels like there's some sort of hunger for that or longing for it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Well, the the feedback I get is that a lot of people are hungering for exactly the details of your life, right? Which is... You're, you're learning skills, mm -hmm. you're doing things, mm -hmm. um, you have a tendency to just figure stuff out. <laughs> oh, am I not allowed to swear on this? No, you, we can swear. You, okay. you figure shit out, okay? <laughs> Fuck. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh God. No, I think it's I've not sworn like, like 20 times already, probably. Oops. No, don't worry about it. Um, we're amongst friends and yeah. family. Yeah. So let, let's, uh, but I, I get the sense that a lot of, so I get emails all the time. So let me tell you about one I just got. I haven't responded to yet. Okay. Guy says, hey, I'm 26 years old, I can't do this thing anymore, which is probably the nine to five job. Mm -hmm. He's in LA, threw himself you know, out there and said, I don't really have any skills, but I know I desperately need them. Is there any place for me you know, on, on your farm that I have going here? And, and so I think uh, I get emails like that all the time. People are looking for two things. They're looking for a set of, a, a way to apply themselves to this new future they think is coming and they think it involves new skills mm -hmm. beyond being an account executive at Nike or whatever they're doing, right? And secondarily, they're looking for community. Yeah. Those are both things I'm positive you have in spades at this point in time. How did that happen? I mean, yeah, you know, I've been, I've thought about this and it's like, it wasn't a, 
for me anyways, it wasn't really a conscious choice. I think so much of it was the way I was raised and where I was raised. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just kind of organically unfolded where I was like, I, I knew from age eight (laughs) that I wasn't interested in some sort of office job or computer work or, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just, it was, I, I knew that that wasn't my, um, calling, you know, Mm -hmm. and I wonder if it's anyone's actual calling, you know, but maybe it is. No, I think increasingly not. The data says that after millions and millions of people had to stay home because of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. they're not going back to work. So right now we have these massive worker shortages. It turns out people don't want to come back to their jobs. Right. You get a taste of something different as whatever it is. So, So a lot of what we're experiencing in terms of the shortages, which we can talk about in a bit, which are pandemic in, in, in our country right now is because they just can't get people to work. You know, those poor fast food restaurants were like, mm-hmm. how come we can't hire people back at $8 an hour? Yeah, right. <laughs> Probably because they're earning I why. 18 <laughs> to stay home. Uh, so you're not, that's not going to work out. But Right, they don't want to go to work and be like abused no, all day. Weird. No, it's so weird. weird. And, and it's, it's even beyond just the, the strict pay. You know, you need pay to survive, I guess. But it's the soul-destroying aspect of the jobs that are meaningless and purposeless. Yeah. As the, as the yeah. main problem. And I think once people got enough separation from that, they're like, I ain't going back. You know? <laughs> right. Once you break the illusion, it's over, baby. You yeah. know? It's like, yeah. don't want it. Yep. It's the, the fish and water thing, you mm-hmm. know? And now you've gotten a chance to be out of it and see the water. And it's like, oh, fuck, I don't want to be back in that. Like, mm-hmm. of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so you knew from an early age, maybe not an office job, but I was working an office job when you were eight. Uh huh. So <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make it look that appealing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't look awesome. Didn't look awesome. Okay. <laughs> Say more. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's funny because we were living. Have you ever, like, painted the picture of where we were in Mystic for people? Not totally. Okay. I just gave them the before and after story, you know. I had a boat and sort of corporate lifestyle waterfront home. Yeah. But not really painting the picture. Yeah. So, I mean, Mystic is, like, a fairly ritzy mm-hmm. area, it's right? A, it's a Gold Coast town, sort of. Yep, yeah. exactly. Um, we were living in, how many square feet were the ha- was the house? Like 5,000. It's a huge house for me, living in, like, 300 square feet now. <laughs> literally um (laughs) so yeah we were living in this just like to me a mansion you know Mm -hmm. um but we never really fit in there you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i i'm thinking of this one particular photo from childhood where me and my siblings are in front of this mansion and we are completely coated in mud from head to toe you know like bless you and mom for trying to keep us somewhat presentable in that area Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it It didn't work uphill battle (laughs) yeah so you know but then to to kind of get the taste of what that lifestyle felt like to then transition to this farm i mean we moved to this tiny little farmhouse where you could vacuum every room from the same outlet and Mm -hmm. you know started we got chickens and I remember because tragically the TV got broken in the move. Oh no! How did it that got happen? Broken oh, hey, never. wait! It did it get broken? <laughs> oh my god! This is like when you learn Santa's not real. <laughs> <laughs> the TV got broken, <sighs> and okay. somehow we just 
never quite replaced it. Huh, weird. <laughs> that was actually one of the best moves we ever made. <laughs> Definitely. Props. Nice job. Yep. <laughs> because we literally were out, like me and Simon and Grace yeah. were outside all day, every day. And that was also when we transitioned to homeschooling. Mm -hmm. um, and I started doing these nature programs every week that completely shaped my life. I mean, I'm running nature programs now. So you, know? you say nature programs. I think a lot of people listening think, oh, we're going to learn to identify oak trees. That's, that's part of it. That's part of that's it. But, but it's more than that. Yeah. So what, what's the nature program about, really? Um, well, f you know, when I was a kid, it was kind of, there was a lot of that tree identification, food, like wild foods, um, a lot of um, bow drill and hand drill. That's like primitive fire technologies, if mm -hmm. folks don't know. Um, there was a lot of like, where do you find water on the landscape? How do you build natural shelters? And I loved it. You know, it was it was just the most freeing thing, you know, to go from public school to just getting to play. And I've always been like a nature nerd, so... Yeah. That was just right up my alley. Um, but but pretty deep, pretty deep skills that that go beyond just sort of like um, sort of the rote memorization of this. Here's the different types of trees. Yeah. One of my favorite stories is is uh, a rite of passage at a certain age of this was to spend a night outdoors all by yourself. And mm -hmm. they would just send you out into the woods with what you had on your back. Mm -hmm. And I remember you came back from one of those. I think it was your first one or maybe your second one. I can't remember. But the story was. You go out, you build a debris shelter, and this is October sometime, right? So yeah, it could be raining, it's yeah. in Vermont, I mean, it could be really cold, yep. and it was a few years. So I asked you, were you cold? You're like, no, I, I made a fire. Like, I thought you weren't supposed to do that. Did you bring a match with you? And you said, no, they didn't take my shoelaces away. <laughs> <laughs> so to connect those dots for people listening, it is possible to go from shoelaces to fire. How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so, I completely forgot about that. Yep. Um, shoelace becomes the string on the bow, mm -hmm. which then wraps around the spindle, which is like the upright part of the kit. And then you um, basically use the bow to spin that spindle really fast, create a lot of friction, creates dust in the bottom board, the fireboard. Um that dust compacts, gets wicked, wicked hot. Like I think it's like 900 degrees or something in boat for Bodrill and um, compresses and becomes a little coal. And then you put that into a bundle of tinder and blow it into flames. <laughs> so yeah, they didn't take my shoelaces. <laughs> so <laughs> shouldn't have taught us how to do Bodrill if they didn't so want us making fire. I'll tell you one of my, one of my, <laughs> one of my favorite stories. So, so, uh, we come from a fairly traditional family. My, my family's got bankers going back a long way on mm -hmm. the Canandaigua side of the story. My grandfather was president of a bank and his father and his father. So it's a very long family lineage. And I have uncles and um, other family members still, you know, operating the bank. So at any rate, one of the family rites of passages was uh, you kids each got a small lot allotment of this Canandaigua stock, which has this thing called a dividend. So I remember the day clearly. <laughs> and this is a story about how kids actually are absorbing more than you yeah. think. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. So I, I remember this day because for me, an important part of growing up was that day you got your first bank account. You know, you have this little passbook and there's like a number in it. And it's, it's an important thing, right? My, I remember my mom bringing me to the bank and getting my first bank account. So I'm ready to transmit this family 
legacy moment, proud moment. I sit you three kids down. I think you're probably 12, 8, and 6 or something like that. You're pretty young. And so I explain the whole thing. You guys are like really, you love the idea of magic money showing up in the, in the mail. That sounds cool. Mm-hmm. And I said, and we're going to go open bank accounts. I explain the whole bank account thing. And I just stand aside because I'm ready for all three kids to rush out the door. And we're all excited. And you just all sit there looking at me. I was like, what's wrong? <laughs> and you said, well, what if the bank goes bankrupt? What happens to my money? And then Simon, the middle, says, I'd rather have silver. And Grace said, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't realize you were all listening. Because uh-huh. I railed to your mom about yep. about banks and precious metals. And I think that was the, f- yeah. So, <laughs> so much for that family moment, right? Chirping crickets. You, look, you just looked at me like a dog listening to white noise. You're like, hmm. why would I put my money in a bank? That sounds weird. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of sus. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so, so it began. So and so it began. Yep. And I remember when you gave me my first piece of silver. Uh-huh. I remember that. The Walking Liberty. This mm-hmm. beautiful coin. Yeah. There's just something about the, the weight of it and the sound when you flick it in the air. And yeah. I just... Like, so let's talk. Like real let's money. talk about treasure because one of the things okay. I did specifically raising you kids was oh my god, um, making sure that uh, nothing, whatever you got was actually earned, mm-hmm. right? So, so there was a treasure hunt though that sort of unfolded at this island, and it was an eleven-year-long tre- treasure hunt. If I have my numbers right, that's correct. Tell us that. about that. What do you remember about that? Because that started when you were pretty young. This is like, I will tell you, this is a core memory for me. This was like, this really stuck out. The moment of finding that bottle specifically. So we were on a, a hike, right? We were on a walk with this family friends that were with us. And on and this just fairly deserted island. Deserted island. We're walking. It's like a beautiful day. It's like foggy, you know? Um, and... Yeah, we're walking along the beach, and um, I, th- I think it was somebody. I think it was you. You said, "Like guys, look, there's a snake." And I think it was like eight. I think it was about eight years old, maybe seven. And my friends and I gathered around. We're like, "Where's the snake, Dad?" You know. And uh, and you're like, "Oh, it must have gone." But then we were like, "Wait, there's a bottle there, buried in the side of this hill." Like, oh my god, you know. And we were just over the moon we were so psyched and then we pulled it out and it had this burned stained wrinkled old you know note in it and that's (laughs) that led us down and yes you're right 11 year long i remember when that when that note was found my experience was that um you got your kids got so excited that your your emanations moved out of my hearing range up yes. into like where dogs Yeah, could hear. dogs were barking on other <laughs> islands exactly. <laughs> and I like bless you. I do not know how you did this. How you kept it under wraps for so long. I mean, for years we were convinced that Bill Tree Reed, the guy who had signed this note, the guy who would drowned off the coast of this island which is a real story real story this was the best friend of my great grandfather i believe you have to root these things in in it was a real thing so we found it you know his name we did all this research we found stories about him in these old like newspaper records and all that stuff so we were fully sold and the note talked about treasure though and the note talked about treasure so well i mean that was it we spent the next 
11 summers. So I remember you guys are young. You're like, you're like eight, six, five, four, Something two, like whatever. That, you're yeah. all young. And, and of course there were the parents involved who, who set this whole thing up. Like we had to have this conversation because they really wanted to like, oh, we should just show them where, where this is. And I was like, nope. Yeah. And so you guys didn't find that treasure that first year. Sure didn't. Next year you came back. There's the little note up on the shelf. You all pulled it down. It's Off still there. Off you would scatter yeah. into the woods trying to decode the, <laughs> the messages on it. <laughs> didn't you, find it the second year oh my god and we tried all of these different tactics to get because like once we were like i want to say like 13 we were like this starting to like hmm, this smells like <laughs> bullshit i got you to like i remember this i got you to sign something and i compared your signature to the handwriting and i was like <laughs> i got it it's him you know well my favorite <laughs> moment of trying to get to play gotcha is all of you kids stormed in you were pissed as hell you were it's nighttime. There's a fire going. You're all mad, and mm-hmm. you said we're done. And you had you took that note, which was very carefully made with little yeah. burned edges and tea stained, and yeah. and you threw it into the fire and said we're done with your with your stupid story. That's right. And that was trying to get us to break. But of course, what you kids had done was mocked up an exact copy of this thing. You better believe I <laughs> I wrote every word of that down. I burned the edges to match the other one perfectly. Like we spent a long time staining it, you know, and doing it so that you wouldn't see that we were pouring the tea to stain it. You know, it was a long process. And yeah. and. I think and our acting skills were pretty good. They that were day, very we good. Almost got mom to crack. Almost, I swear to God. Almost got mom to we crack. We were so but, close, but we didn't crack. <laughs> and so another One, six years another went year, by. Another <laughs> <laughs> so, but every summer though, this was actually a, a point of focus was to drag that map out oh, yeah. and to keep looking. Mm-hmm. And we just we just let it run. Mm-hmm. And then there was the eleventh year. Oh, man, it was so beautiful. We had, I think we, what did you use? You used some sort of like disappearing ink on mm-hmm. the back, which, yeah. oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, was that just lemon juice? What was that? Yeah, it was lemon juice. Lemon juice. Okay, so we heat this thing up very delicately. I don't even remember how we figured out how to do this. Heat it up in a frying pan. Mm-hmm. Like magic, these words appear, you know, that guide us to the point where we're supposed to go mm-hmm. we're freaking out because it's been 11 years to this moment and we're so we're like we are so fucking dumb how did we not heat it up sooner <laughs> <laughs> like god okay so we go to this yeah. place and we're tromping around and you know it's this beautiful thick layer of moss the whole island is covered in and we're stomping around we're, we're looking for hours you know we're like i know we're in the right zone but it's also been a long time like it's probably totally overgrown like how the hell are we gonna find this thing and we had a friend with us who he was stomping around he was getting frustrated more and more frustrated till finally he just like threw his shovel down and we just heard this clink and we just stopped you know there's that beautiful electric moment of silence where we all just looked at each other like wait did you hear that wasn't rock like that was metal you know and then we started screaming and finally unearthed this treasure so my god what a saga <laughs> and there was actual treasure in there <laughs> Bravo, there was yes there was silver there yep. was like beautiful jewelry mm-hmm. yep i was a little worried that it was going to be like 11 year old lollipops yes yeah, because he Twizzlers. used to do that yes yeah, yeah. like whatever moldy tits year olds yeah. but real treasure there was real treasure in there yeah, yeah. so um <laughs> and that's uh uh I, I, I pushed hard to say, no, you know, we need to, we need to let them 
work this out, yeah. right? Because I actually believe in that as a, as a parenting style is when, when you actually work through something by yourself, it has a different meaning and it becomes yours. It's not about us doing something. So that became your kids yeah. like whole thing. And it's a shared memory and it's, it belongs to you now. Right. And so we are, we containered it, but the rest was out of our hands. And what a better story than, you know, if you guys had spilled the beans and we found it that same day, I probably would have forgotten it, but mm -hmm. you know, to have it be this long, epic, beautiful process, you know, yep. And uh, served our purposes because you kids would be out stomping around digging yeah, holes exactly. all over the island. I'm like, I'm <laughs> noting that. That's genius. <laughs> Just Parents, let that take run. note. Just file that one away if you ever want your kids out of the house. <laughs> mm -hmm. But as well, I, I worked hard, too, to um, I remember you, you kids had to work hard to figure out when I was lying. Because if you would ask me something, my default response would be to either tell you the truth or tell you enough truth that it was truthy. Mm -hmm. Or to just outright BS the mm -hmm. whole situation. Because I actually wanted critical thinking. I think it's one of the things I value most highly in my life is the ability to say, oh, somebody's telling me something. How am I going to receive this? And should I just trust this? Mm -hmm. Right? And so, yeah, that was, I remember probably somewhere around for each of you around the, between the ages of eight and 10, you'd start to decode like, okay, when he's got his tongue over to the side, he must be. He's looking to the left. He's looking to the left. He must Ooh. be. <laughs> <laughs> I think we actually, we, I think we made a list of those like tell signs. Mm -hmm. I, it's probably buried somewhere. That'd be pretty good to pull out though. Mm -hmm. See if it's still true. <laughs> so all of which, all of which is just, uh, part of part of where you are now and so as you take all of those skills and learnings and your upbringing and everything well, how do you how do you see the world today from a widen the lens way up like from your perspective at your age you look into this thing we call our current situation how do you see it well i mean obviously you know growing up with you as my dad and listening to you record the crash course through your in your tiny little sweaty <laughs> office <laughs> you know I, I kind of grew up with this sense of like this all feels like like some sort of facade you know it doesn't feel um you know this story that you can just work hard and save a lot of money and you know buy a house and save for retirement you know that whole the whole the arc the arc the the cultural myth that we're operating on just always felt like bs you know mm -hmm. so um and i think i'm obviously you know i grew up as your daughter and so i kind of grew up with that um just seeing it seeing it as that as a story you know rather than just the objective um truth you know, and also just the, the growing up and especially when we were in Mystic, growing up and just seeing like the, the way people were operating when they were kind of in the water of the mother culture, like yeah, Daniel Quinn says. That? Um, well, it's just this, there's like a lot of different threads to it, but I think it's just, um, if you do A and B and C, you will be happy, you know, something like that. But I just never actually saw that playing out. Mm -hmm. um, 
with just this this story of you're only as valuable as you are productive um you are going to be ostracized and shamed and outcast if you don't fit into this cultural narrative um just all of that has mm-hmm. is never sat right with me um mm. and and i think that was like why as a child i was like so entrenched in these like older ways of living where i was just like you know i was actually i i just re was rereading those books cuz there's actually a lot of like information in there about how do you spin wool and blah 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 so but just reading them and reading about the ridiculous amount of skills these people had to live like they were literally you know this guy that her father was the hunter and the tanner and the her mother made all of their clothing which is insane to me as someone who works with fibers a lot that is like herculean that amount of effort goes into that growing all of their food you know they're everybody in not that long ago had way more skills like mm. actual skills to live than um i would say most people have today and i think these skills inform each other so um if you have to learn how to use a hammer you learn something about momentum and if you have to use the other side of the hammer you learn something about leverage and yeah and if you have to put an animal down you learn something about life and on and on and on yeah. i mean but they 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 coalesce so when i was down at Joel Salatin's farm and seeing his son and his uh, all the people uh, there working with them uh, it's just astonishing to me like any anywhere you went and you asked them something there was a whole story under it yeah and we were probably just getting the tip of that story sure right but everything from how you motivate and incentivize people what kind of contracts you would write how you put fences in how you would uh, think about hydrology where you make roads like there was just it, there was no end to it you know two solid days of them just sharing as fast as they could and we barely scratched the surface of this thing but if you walk on there you could feel it because mm-hmm. the whole place is sort of operating in a way and there's an intelligence to the interaction and interplay yeah. and that's very different from being a super specialist where you know all you know is um, one tiny piece of the overall story that, that that comes together to make what you would call your sustenance system right you know right and i think that just happens naturally when you're really just getting your hands dirty and you know and it's funny because you can pick any skill and it kind of branches out mm-hmm. into everything else like i'm i'm i've been learning how to weave these baskets for a few years now and you know it's not just learning the art of weaving the basket to weave can I, it can i have to yeah this is when did you make this one? Um, I think I finished that one a year and a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, know, my instinct is to go bury this at an Anasazi site. <laughs> Narragansett, actually, they're the ones that made that. Narragansett. Style. <laughs> so put this at a dig and let an anthropologist dig it up, and and just be. This would go in a museum. There'd be a little tag <laughs> under it. Like. Well, the cool thing about those is they do last for like they they've dug up ones that are like four hundred, five hundred years old. It's beautiful. Um, that yeah. they just last forever, but. You know, to weave this basket, I have to know um, there's two different types of fibers in here, and I have to know which type of tree this fiber comes from. When do I peel the bark off so that I can extract the fibers? How do I extract the fibers? Um, How do I store them? You know, I had to learn how to carve this particular type of um, device to 
store my cordage on, you know? Um, so it really is that type of thing where you pick one seemingly like small mm -hmm. skill and it just branches out into everything else. But wh why did, what made you start? Um, well, I was doing this, this term never like encompasses what it is, but I was doing a naturalist program, mm -hmm. um, an adult one, uh, with the man who taught me how to weave these baskets. Um, and I saw him weaving and I had actually been watching him weave these for a few years and they always caught my eye and I was always like, there's something so alluring about that. Um, and so finally he agreed to teach me how to make them. Um, which again is no small thing because there's so much that goes into just this one little basket mm. um, when you're sourcing every single piece of it and creating every single piece of it. Um, so I really just completely fell in love with the whole process, especially just there's something about the pace of it that um, kind of illuminated for me my own um, the kind of like background static of the cultural stories of everything has to be fast. Everything has to be efficient. If I don't master this immediately, it's worthless, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, so this kind of brought like flushed all of that up to the surface for me. Um, and just let me experience a different way of being with it, you know? Um, which is one that's like very slow and very painstaking and takes <laughs> a lot of time. And, you know, I've only made about, I think this is, I've made five of them and I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours doing it and I'm just scratching the surface, you know, scratching the surface of, of, of basket making, how to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Every single one has felt like a fluke, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm so lucky that this turned out how it did. Cause I don't know, <laughs> you know, huh? So it sounds more like a, a creative process where something emerges. Something emerges. Yeah. 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 So back to this idea of, of the future. I mean, your generation is the first one to grow up with this whole existential climate change and or the insect apocalypse and or I mean, there's yeah. a lot of things sort of lurking around that story. And I think that the options include fully going into the story and becoming the account executive for Nike and just sure pretending as if things aren't really how they are, right? You have to you have to go through a certain level of denial and, and ignoring the data, or you have to try and figure out how to live with it yeah, and make peace with it in some way or something, Yeah, right? Where do you fall on that? Um, I mean, it's a, it's definitely changes day to day. I go from total like grief at seeing like way less butterflies than I remember seeing when I was a kid mm -hmm. um, to just like um, grateful, you know, grateful for the world that I get to live in and that I get to live um, in a way that feels much more related to the natural world around me um, mm -hmm. that feels more honest um, with just who I am. Um, but I mean, yeah, climate change is that it's a huge one. It's yeah, honestly, it's, it's really scary. And I think cause uh, it's like, you don't know how to, nobody my age seems to know how to 
handle it or face it or respond to it. I mean, I feel like so, um, it's so easy to get just demoralized and depressed and paralyzed and like, mm -hmm. the fuck am I supposed to do about it? Mm -hmm. How do I respond? I'm just one little person. What do I do? You know? And that's why I think climate change is one thing that makes the whole story of, well, just save up for retirement and keep trucking along at business as usual just makes it feel like so like dissonant to the reality that we're actually in. Well, it's, it's insane making, right? Because yeah. they're two separate, not even parallel, not even orthogonal. They're completely different narratives. One narrative is we need to get the economy growing. You need to get a job. You're going to have to, you know, go into debt to get an education or exactly. buy a house. You have to do all of this, which is all participating in this system that we know is destroying the very thing that the system needs to exist. Yeah. So how do you get super excited about participating in this system, which is doing this over yeah. here? It's very, it doesn't really square up very well as yeah. a story. Yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. And I think, I think it's just becoming, it's getting to the point now where it's, you, you kind of can't ignore it. Like, mm -hmm. do you have that sense too, that it's, yeah. This type of awareness is yeah, and, 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 spreading. And so um, I get dinged a lot by people who say I should make climate change more of a central focus of mine. And I don't do it because what I care about is leading people to, to insights that lead to action. Mm -hmm. And climate change violates several of the precepts we know about humans. So humans are really clever at some things. We're not that awesome at other things. So we don't do that well with statistical arguments. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't do that well with things that are distant, right? People will jump in a, this recency or nearness bias. Like if you see a kid fall into a canal, 99 out of 100 people jump in and pull it out. You hear about a kid starving in Africa, one out of 100 sends, you know, the dollar a day or whatever is required to sort of maybe address that. It's that that's, makes it tricky. And then the hardest part is that um, your local experience is going to be different. Right. So if you told me here living in Western Mass this summer that climate change is going to bake the earth, I'm going to say, no, we had a, probably one of the coolest, wettest, wettest Julys I'm, I'm yeah. aware of. Right. You know, we only hit the 90s a couple of times, but we were typically in the 70s or 80s, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so so that all those things tend to militate against people actually taking action around it because their daily experience, like if every day you woke up and it was just too hot. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's an easier story to talk about, but because it doesn't work that way, it's a chaotic system. You know, it's very hard to show people, a, most people, a chart where this line is bouncing more or less upwards. Right, for you're the not going to get years. like inspired to make life changes based on like graphs or or numbers. Particularly not if it involves actual changes that are going to be experienced by our reptilian brain as loss. Yeah, well, see, that's why I'm I'm really grateful that you and mom sent me to those nature programs so young um, and I could really start um, nature went from this like wall of green to like oh that's an individual plant I can use it for that and I can eat that and that's medicine for this and you know and it really when you build these relationships with the plants and the animals and the trees and you actually get to know them mm -hmm. um, it you, it's easier to track those patterns over time because you actually know what you're looking at you know um so i think it does make climate change that much more real when i'm like no no i haven't seen 
you know, hardly any monarchs this year compared to the year before that. Very compared to the year, this be- year. Right. So it's like when you actually, when you start to be like able to know what you're paying attention to, it makes it, it makes it feel more near and more real and more like yeah. immediate. Yeah. And, and, and there are other things that are more near and immediate for me, um, even though I think climate change is a big sort of slow lumbering thing mm-hmm. that's going to really bite us badly. But there's things before that that'll probably bite us first. And the insect apocalypse is a big one for me because I just sort of have that, like Boromir said, one does not simply, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, um, one does not simply take out the bottom of the food chain. Yeah. Right? I know. We, we can't predict what's going to happen next, but I see it in the birds that aren't here this year. The bird count is way down. I mean, we have the local residents. There's mm-hmm. chickadees here, but but everybody's down a bit because the birds eat the insects, mm-hmm. right? And the insects are really decimated. Even here, I live in a probably the, one of the wildest areas of Massachusetts mm-hmm. where the next thing over just up the road is the largest contiguous remaining wilderness area in all of Massachusetts, yep. four square miles. So we should have relatively low pressure from whatever it is that's causing the apocalypse if it's neonicotinoid pesticides. But whatever it is, it's very real. And it's still impacting, I mean, everything, right? Yeah. It's like you can't affect the the thing at the bottom of the food chain without it just rippling everywhere. Through the whole thing. Yeah. And it's going to be one of those stories like, you know, for want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost in the kingdom, right? So because of that nail being lost, right? Uh, nice so job. it'll be something like that. It'll be something like that where, where we're like, why are these brown fungi all over our crops this year? Right. And by the time we unpack it, it'll be, well, because you needed this nematode to eat this thing in order for that not to do this. But because that wasn't here, this, it's, it'll well, be something every, like it's, that. It's right. It's all of these intertwined, very complex, very subtle, often systems. And you just like put one thing out of balance or one thing out of place. And who knows what the ripple effects Hmm. are going to be and i mean we're seeing those and i feel like we have been seeing those yeah for a while yeah um so why hasn't why do you think that hasn't um led to some sort of like larger change when we're seeing this so it's hard to get a good organizing principle for this um and as you know uh, i'm very much not religious but i do find I can learn from almost any area. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of truth contained in some of the religious uh, metaphors and stories. And one of them is around this middle-aged description is where it first started coming in of Mammon, one of the, one of the chief minions of Satan. And Mammon is, is, the, is the under god of the underworld who convinces you that money is real and convinces you to waste your life chasing shiny things. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's, it's money. Hmm. And, it's, and so I wrote a whole article called One Step Removed, which shows that <clears throat> uh, if you just give humans one step removed, that's all the daylight we need to do some really morally questionable things, right? Hmm. So one example of that is the case of um, Aaron Brockovich, movie, Julia Roberts is in it. It's a real story about a woman mm-hmm. who um, fought PG&E because they were dumping this hexavalent chromium into wells. It got off-site and came into people's water supply and was creating cancer in children, mm-hmm. right? One step removed. Hey, we put this stuff down here in the well, and the engineers did that. Not a single one of those engineers would have taken some of this 
and poured it straight into a kid's cereal bowl. Right. Not one of them. Right. Removed just enough. Just enough. Yeah. Money gives us that same one step removed. Mm-hmm. People will do a lot in the name of money. Oh, well, profits, I'm Monsanto, I have to. I'm Bayer, I'm Syngenta, I need to make these neonicotinoids. Farmers make a few extra bucks because it's just easier. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's it. I, I think it's just we're chasing money. And it's one of the oldest... Uh, we're, we're really just living up to things that historically, biblically, through all sorts of religious texts, they say, yeah, it's a bad idea. Yeah. You get taken off track. I think it's money yeah so we live in the most abundant world possible and people live with it with a profound sense of scarcity and some of the people i know who have the strongest sense of scarcity are centimillionaires right these are people with a lot of money but they're desperately afraid of losing it of not having more they don't have as much as the other person it's weird we live in the most abundant period of time i'd love to hear you talk about gratitude because we can have a lot of gratitude yes for living at probably the easiest most wonderful time in all of human history, and yet oh my God, yeah. most people experience it as profound day-to-day scarcity, yeah. which is weird. Yeah, I mean, do you think that's just the like the cultural narrative that just seeps in through through families and through parenting styles and through the school system? And through our collective consciousness marketing programs. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Which, you know, we have that collective hysteria happening right now, yeah. right here. So in, this is the end of August 2021. We're recording this, but... Right now, the sort of vaccinated versus unvaccinated hysteria that's sort of come up is is now completely detached from, to me, from the underlying piece, which is that if you're healthy, you have a 99.98% chance of surviving this. Where did that 0.02 become so terrorizing to people? Which is just life, by the way. I hate to tell people this, but being born is 100% fatal. <laughs> eventually right (laughs) (laughs) comes with a hundred percent fatality rate Mm -hmm. it's weird so it's just part of life but we've we've divorced ourselves from from life right yeah and and i think that's what you're speaking to in your farm and the nature connection is that's a reconnection to life yes where sometimes shit happens all the time shit happens yeah yeah i mean i mean i remember um you do you remember how old i was when we did the first turkey slaughter well, we were in Mystic, so that must... Oh, no, no, no. We did that in, in um, Bernardston. So, eight, yeah. maybe. You know, so I I grew up around death, you mm-hmm. know? And, like, getting to see, like, all of the messy, hard, like, painful parts of life that I'm, I'm glad I wasn't hidden from. Um I remember. It must I would, have been eight or nine, because I think yeah. uh, the way I remember that story more clearly is because of Simon. Yes, please tell that story. <laughs> so we've been watching Monty Python, right? And Monty Python has this one part where in, in one of the movies where there are these monks who walk around and go, Om Namani Javaway, and they hit themselves on the head with their little monk boards, right? Mm-hmm. It's a Monty Python mm-hmm. skit. It's a lot of fun. So your mom and I were over there, we were processing a turkey, and all of a sudden Simon bursts out crying, and we look over, and we had to piece it together because he had a dent in his forehead. The L. He had <laughs> the a dent, <laughs> dent from the corner of a very heavy cutting board. <laughs> he just... <laughs> just doing some role-playing. Just, just some role-playing. Just he was really getting into character. He just... Method acting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I can clearly remember him crumpled over five 
ish. Yep. So that puts you at eight or nine, right? Yep. Depending on where we are in that story. Yep. Yeah. Something like that. All right. That. So what about the turkeys? Well, I mean, I was just there were there were many more slaughters after that. I mean, honestly, it was the the chicken slaughter day was one of my favorite days because we would all just get into work mode. We would just get into this rhythm, this flow. Me mm-hmm. and my sister would get into like who can get the chicken faster competitions, and mm-hmm. and it was this really. I mean, it was. There's always like grief when you're ending animals' lives. There's always grief when you're actually like in relationship with your food and um and seeing the the messy details of it but there was also just this like joy and connection and and play that Mm -hmm. came along with it too um yeah i can't remember why we started with the whole chicken thing i'm i'm just i just i just like doing things for myself whenever possible Mm -hmm. right so that was just always part of life was Build something if you need it. Fix it if it can be fixed. Grow it yourself if you can. And I, I was on that vibe way before I started. That's just kind of how I'm constructed. So now yeah. I'm glad that we did all of that, given where the world is. And once I had an organizing framework for the world, I was like, oh, yeah, this seems like a good idea. Mm. People maybe ought to know how to do these things. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. should. Uh, should, an actual one. But I, I... I I now realize that, you know, part of my story of self is that I was running from something for a while. I was, I was sure that the economy was going to collapse. I didn't realize the level of insanity they would bring it to. I was sure that the systems were more fragile than they were. Yep. But now that I'm here on this side of it, you know, with my own cows and chickens and pigs and things like that, I would come, I would run towards this life because I like what it teaches me and I like the grounding. I like the connection of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what this whole story has to be about for this next arc is that I just think we're out of balance as a species. We're just out of balance, out of balance with ourselves, out of balance with each other, out of balance with the natural world, just out of balance. You know, Hopi prophecy sort of nailed this a long time ago. Kind of Scotsy is the word for life out of balance. And they said, yeah, you guys are going to have a, you'll have an experience with that. Probably not until, what was the prophecy? Not until after you've poisoned the last river, yeah. eaten the last fish, you know, killed the last buffalo, done what you're going to do. They, they saw us as locusts. Um, and then we'll do what all organisms do when you finally run out of resources, which is go, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is it's where we're, we're operating on this story of, of unlimited everything, unlimited growth, unlimited resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've that like that is just not true that is just not how the world is and so that um i think when you when you start to live this kind of like i i, I use i think of the word smaller because it feels like the concentric rings of my life just have gotten a lot smaller with this lifestyle mm-hmm. um of like my f- a lot of my food is coming from 50 feet from my front door and um obviously i'm not like a puritan i don't think you really can be <laughs> these days no. you know of course i'm guilty of i drive cars and whatever mm-hmm. um but just having that like smaller it's like when you know where everything's coming from you also learn the the limits of it like it, you you learn limits when you're getting your hands dirty and um building things for yourself and and you learn your limits and you learn the limits of the place that you're in. Um, mm-hmm. And 
and that is very contradictory to the kind of cultural overstory of limitless everything yeah yeah can i just say i'm really glad i don't have to make a living as a farmer because i'm not that good at it it's really hard takes a lot of work it takes, a, <laughs> it takes lot. a lot of work and i am not by the way i <laughs> just make that clear huh? not a farmer All not right. making my living as a farmer yep. i i love it and respect to people that do it um so but, you're teaching kids now uh yep, at least in part the outdoor programs outdoor programs yeah have you noticed any change over the years in terms of how kids are showing up in terms of skills or i'm, I'm thinking about the screen time let me just tell you this when we have there's two classes of kids who show up here because we have people from the local community we otherwise come through and some of them know how to be in their bodies and use them and many of them don't mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty profound well so it, there is there's a huge i've noticed major differences in the kids that show up so most of my programs um the kids are homeschooled because they're mm run throughout the school year on school days. So most of the kids that end up showing up are homeschooled. Um, and I feel really lucky because most of the kids that are in those programs had older siblings that grew up going to these programs who had older siblings who went, you know, and they've kind of, so they kind of have absorbed a lot of the kind of subculture of the group um, mm -hmm. just by osmosis. And, um, and so that means that they show up with a totally different ability to listen and pay attention and um, kind of know, like there's a lot of these kind of small, I don't know, rituals or like routines built in throughout our day. So we start a day with gratitude. We end our day with some sort of story from our day. Um, we, when we're entering the forest, we'll like pause and stop at the edge of the forest and just stand there in silence for about a minute. And that's like pretty impressive to do with a group of like eight, nine, 10 year olds, mm -hmm. you know, that they will and they they lead it. You know, they'll stop before I tell anybody to. They'll stop, you know, so they kind of already have that ingrained in them. Um, and then in contrast, I do I do a few programs or I've done a few programs that have worked with school kids and they're coming to us straight from school they're completely wired like most of the day is just like let's play the most intense running game we possibly can because you just have so much steam built up yeah. you know we're not going to be doing like these long complicated storytellings we're not going to be doing these like very detail-oriented crafts it's where we just have to literally run you mm -hmm. you know so there is definitely a big difference hmm. yeah hmm. Um, so this was, um, another part of the story of your life that just came up this year was, uh, you were diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. Are you willing to talk about that? Sure. Happy to. So I remember the day I was out in my field, get mm -hmm. the call from you. You said, dad, I've, I've got cancer. Yep. And tears. I cried. Yeah. I, cried and I don't think I'd ever heard you cry like that before. Hmm. Yeah. It was very moving. And then um, there was a scramble to sort of figure this out because the system, the system of sort of conventional medicine says, come on in, we, we, we want to just slot you right in, you know, get a port installed, we got chemo mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, and I did end up doing that. Which you did end up doing. Yep. But first there was some getting a team together and, and yeah. figuring that all out. And then there were a few alternative things that you were on as well. So, so let's cut to the chase. Mm -hmm. um, 
that was the diagnosis was back in September, mm -hmm. October. October 1st. October yep. 1st was the actual mm -hmm. readout, which was stage four Hodgkin's. Stage four, yep. Which means above and below and bilateral. Diaphragm. Yep. Yep. Which is, I will say, it's different for blood cancers than it is for other types of cancers. Like a stage four diagnosis with a hard tumor is very different. Mm -hmm. um, with lymphoma, I mean, it's the cure rate doesn't change that much depending on the stage. So I got lucky. I was like, I got the poster child of curable cancers. You know, yeah. they call it the good cancer, which like, fuck that. There's not a good cancer, okay. but, <laughs> <laughs> but they call it that. And the I understand bad. it, you know, Le yeah, least bad. Um, yeah, no. So we, there, there was a big like, okay, how do I want to approach this? Um, and I think had I had a, lesser stage I might have approached it in a different mm -hmm. method but at this point it was just like all right we just got to get in there you know clean clean this up as quick as we can which turned out to be chemo um, mm -hmm. so I finished that on May 11th a couple months ago you have hair I do I have hair I you have eyebrows I have eyebrows I have eyelashes um, my doctor said I was only the second person he'd seen go in 30 years of treating patients to come out with hair at the end of it so mm -hmm. thank you <laughs> <laughs> very lucky and as well you were on um a lot of complimentary things as well yeah what, what else were you taking well oh my god i'm, I'm still taking like two fistfuls of supplements every day mm -hmm. i like i am a pro at i can literally swallow like probably 12 pills at a time right now just, i'm literally not getting i could probably <laughs> swallow like a whole egg i haven't tested that out but i probably could like uh -huh. <laughs> so all right what's what's in this pile of pills <laughs> oh there's there's ugh, all kinds of stuff there's um green tea extract selenium vitamin d vitamin c vitamin e vitamin b uh, what else is in there niacin um there is Niacin, are you taking the flush niacin? Um, taking the flush niacin. So the first few days were, I was a little sweatier than normal, but mm -hmm. I think I actually, I, I was lucky to not have as strong a reaction to it as other people have. Mm -hmm. And she also had me doing this. She was a very, she had a very holistic approach. So there, she had me doing things like, um, you know, breath work to like calm my nervous system down. She had me doing all these like visualizations and stuff while I was getting my chemo. She had me, um, you know, exercising and drinking just like so much water, um, a ridiculous amount of water. So it was a very rounded, well-rounded approach that I think um, made it. I mean, I think I got through it about as easy as I possibly could have. I remember um, uh, speaking with your first sort of very traditional oncologist. So you, you had a whole team. You had an oncologist. You had a naturopathic oncologist. And um, there were other sort of like add-ons into that whole thing to, mm -hmm. to give you the overall support. What I liked about the naturopathic oncologist, she didn't say, oh, we're, I'm, I'm going to take her down this other path. She said, I'm going to I'm going to work with. We're complementing. We're complementing. Yep, exactly. It's not instead of because the data is no. the pretty strong for the chemo response of these types of Hodgkin's yep. to the chemo but uh uh in in that in that larger process um uh i remember your first oncologist just straight up was i i remember my i have a i have a i have a disqualifying question and she failed it right up front i said what what are your views on nutrition 
<laughs> and she said, oh, we think they, they have anything they can do to eat. I said, ice cream? Oh, yeah. Pizza? Oh, yes. I was like, you do realize that 20 years ago they solved this question for Hodgkin's and many other cancers that what you eat is actually really important, but that, that this medical system practiced state-of-the-art mm-hmm. as it is, still doesn't have a position on nutrition, was disqualifying to me yeah. for that person. Well, I will, I'll play devil's advocate here, though, because I did see other patients that were going through the same type of chemotherapy that I was going through, and they were, like, the type of nausea where you literally cannot get food down, and so they were rapidly losing weight, even though they were on kind of steroids and other um, drugs to kind of combat the nausea. But they were just losing weight so quick that the nurses were like, you just need straight up calories, you know. Okay. So in that case, it was like. Well, I have a bias though because you came into this so healthy because of your overall eating patterns. Yeah. And just general state of health that it probably that's part of the explanatory reason for why. You, it, it was an easier run for you than those people, I would say. But to me, if, if, you're, if your nutrition comes in poor, like you've got a, you're on a yeah. standard American diet, you're sad right you've got a high fructose sort of like metabolic disorder yeah. i think yeah then i could then i could see that you know they say well for these people they just need calories i guess anything will do yep so they don't fully waste away yeah no and i do think in the in the larger context like it's it's so obvious to me that i cannot believe it's not more of a topic in your medical training <laughs> like i think it's like a i've i've read it's like a two day kind yep. of course on nutrition which is like no no that's how we literally build our bodies like you would think that may have something to do with health (laughs) (laughs) maybe 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 Maybe. oh it's just it's really it's bizarre that we're this uh medieval uh, still about nutrition very archaic yes yeah yeah because there's a lot of data out there but this was this was a real eye-opener for me um one of the things i did was download the moss report which i loved yeah, that was great. It's 400 pages about Hodgkin's. Um, I guess maybe 20% of it's about Hodgkin's. The other 80% is probably common to many cancers. But what I loved about the way the Moss Report breaks it down, so for anybody who has cancer, I would highly recommend you get the Moss Report mm-hmm. and if, just start reading because what Moss, this doctor, Moss guy does is just very logical. said, here's what we know. Here's what we sort of know. Here's what we don't know. Right. right? Red, yellow, green. Yep. The green stuff, for sure, we know correlates really strongly with better outcomes. Yellow. There's some data we'd like to know more. Red, this stuff either works, doesn't work, or is proven to be harmful. Right. Right. Um, and and so that that helps sort of parse through that because it's it's a real bumpy landscape when you go out there because you get these anecdotes of people who say, you know, I licked butterfly wings and I got cured. You mm-hmm. know. So. <laughs> oh know. man, that was my <laughs> least favorite part about one of my least favorite parts about it was just the the everybody had some cure that I yep. needed to try, yep. you know? It's like, well, I'm going to go with the chemo because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an 85% success rate and well, <laughs> even higher for things, my age group. There was a little bit, of, little bit of panic you see involved in that story at the front end too. That's true. I did, I did that for a little bit, but I have to say, like, chemotherapy, when it's used in the right context and this was it I mean it was kind of ridiculous I had because I I originally went in because I had these lymph nodes that were swollen and just weren't going away Mm -hmm. so I went and got them checked out doctor was like "Eh, let's take a biopsy and then we went from there and um and I was I could not believe how quickly it worked the the chemotherapy Mm -hmm. the 
day after they had shrunk by 30 mm-hmm. percent literally like yep. that well, it's quick. a very responsive i was cancer. like oh okay yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is working glad That's cool very glad <laughs> yes <laughs> so but i do think you know the because most people when they're getting this type of chemotherapy it it can be a nightmare mm-hmm. i've read you know, there's like a subreddit for this particular type of lymphoma and was reading other people's stories that totally freaked me out before I went in. I was like, oh, God, I'm mm-hmm. going to be like on my back for 10 days out of the two weeks between treatments. I'm going to lose all of my like taste is going to everything's going to taste metallic. I'm losing my hair within the first month. You know, I'm going to get mouth sores and all of these awful side effects. And I went in and first treatment felt like shit the next day felt like a little better the next day but you know by day three I was back up on my feet and and I was like okay first one seemed okay you know Mm -hmm. not life not totally life shattering and then um and then that just kept happening treatment after treatment I was like okay still have my hair okay still Mm -hmm. feel energized between treatments you know Mm -hmm. no mouth sores like I actually feel like normal in well, what, was, what was your diet before you started like even before you even got the cancer diagnosis what was your um diet like well let's see just before treatment i was eating um i mean i've always been like pretty pretty darn good about eating organic foods um most of my dairy at that time um was like cow like my cows or um the most of the meat i was eating was from this farm you know um so most i'll yeah and obviously like not perfect i would definitely go to Mm -hmm. whole foods and get my whatever bread or butter but um yeah largely organic largely local pretty good Mm -hmm. you know that was why it was like what (laughs) (laughs) when i got diagnosed i know (laughs) it's like what You'd been on bone Come broth on. diets before. Oh yeah, no, I did the whole gaps diet. Gaps I was diet, I had yep. a partner who was who had IBS and we tackled it with the gaps diet, which is like very rigorous, you know. Mm, it's very organic mili- militant militant. Yes. Bone broth and fermented foods and meat and veggies and that's it, mm-hmm. you know. Um so I thought I had always and the weird thing is is like you think you would like be able to tell when you have cancer like i had always had this idea like oh i would just feel like off or weird or but i didn't it was so weird i was Mm -hmm. like i feel (laughs) great other than these lymph nodes i'm waking up with lots of energy i feel you know happy i feel Mm -hmm. whatever and so that was it was just like a total shock yeah it's like whoa yeah and and we don't i mean there's a lot of data this to suggest that hodgkins and lots of lymphomas are actually environmental mm-hmm. and i do think about the fact that, that we live next door to that farm that sprays that just sprays all Roundup the time and, and whatever else something that smelled a lot like grapes one day i don't know what that was but mm-hmm. we would smell it because these people these farmers didn't care if it was windy out or if they were oh, no, you would, would just see these like clouds of it rolling they wouldn't care like they would spray the when field. the bees were out like like responsible farmers yeah. such as they are who are still spraying will do it at night Mm -hmm. You know, when it's calm, um, when the bees aren't out, but these people didn't care. So I wondered if there was something about that because you, you know, had such an incredibly healthy lifestyle otherwise. So who knows? Something like that. Don't know. So how's it, how's it, um, how's it changed your outlook? Um, 
Well, there's it's it's it feels like one of those things where like the dust is still kind of settling from mm. it. You know, it really ended only like two months ago. So I'm still kind of like getting my feet under me. And so maybe like, let's ask me that question again in five years and okay. I might have a different answer. But sure. for now, um, so when I first, um, I remember I went into my first chemo treatment and you know, you're in the chemo ward, there's all of these chairs set up in this room and there's curtains, but most of the curtains are open so you can see the other patients. And I saw these t-shirts, you know, like, fuck cancer and I'm going to make chemo my bitch, like all that kind of messaging. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and I remember seeing that and just being like, God, that is, that is just not interesting to me. Like, I understand it. I totally mm -hmm. understand it you know, hard things happen and it's just like, fuck that, that sucks. That's real. And that mindset just was like, <laughs> like that's not the energy I want to like live my life with, mm -hmm. you know, even with something like cancer. So the approach to it was kind of like, all right, there's this like, I don't know, um, entity or like being that's in my life for a little bit. And so the approach was more like okay who who is this who are you what like is there is there something to learn here is there something to pay attention to that I'm not paying attention to um and I remember and I when I first got diagnosed I got I was just in a wave of shock and fear and just like oh my god how do I even approach this and I had this um this man pop into my mind. He was someone who, who I got to know in kind of a ceremonial context. And, um, he was just someone that I really respected for his and do respect for his just approach to life and, and just the grace and the authenticity of his, he was just this like radiant, like Buddha mm -hmm. <laughs> in my life. And I was like, I want to ask Daryl, how does he, how would he approach something like this? Um, and he's a Diné man who lives on the Navajo reservation. And so I just sent him a text. I was like, hey, Daryl, just got diagnosed, panicking, like would just love to hear some something from you, you know. And and he reached back out and he was like, niece, you're going to need to call me every single day. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Are you sure? That's a, that's a lot, you know? And he's like, no, 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 we need to talk every day. And, and so we did. And so we talked throughout um, most of my treatment until I got my, uh, until I got told that I was in remission. And so he just really coached me on, um, on the approach to the cancer itself, but also just in the approach to my life in, um, just kind of getting out of the, the, the black and white demonization that happens when we're in something that's like really scary and hard and painful. It's mm -hmm. very easy to get into like kind of victim panic mode, like of course. Um, but he really helped me just get still enough to get um, kind of out of that mentality. So thank you, Daryl. If you're mm. listening. Thank you, Daryl. <laughs> Thank you, Daryl. <laughs> really, really, really changed the whole experience for me in a really big way. Hmm. Hmm. And that obviously has um, potential to impact other areas of... Uh, oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah. it's everything. 
it's it's completely it's um yeah it's it's one of those things that's really hard to put to words because it's just it it feels like something um something kind of softened in me or like melted and I don't quite have the like story for exactly what that was but just my experience of my life is um is just it's like you know the scene from Wizard of Oz is popping to mind when it turns from black and white to color it's like mm -hmm. there's just this deep reverence for life that I think I obviously you know I had glimpses of it before but when you kind of have this like reminder of it you know I have my like port scar right here it's this that'll be with me for the rest of my life the you port know where the port where, they where the chemo went in yeah, yeah and it's just it's on my chest and and so it's just this kind of constant reminder of like oh this all ends you know this all ends and it's like I don't I lost the luxury of like forgetting that mm -hmm. you know and um and so yeah there's just this like this deeper way of feeling my life that came out of this yeah yeah well, I'm obviously thrilled that it turned out the way it has so far. And yeah. I guess there's another, you, you're on, you'll get scans for a number of years. and. Actually, no, they stopped doing that. Really? Yeah, oh. my doctor was like, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm actually going in for a checkup in a couple of weeks. And if there's any cause for concern, if there's any symptoms or side effects, or if the nodes feel swollen at all like obviously i'll go in again but they don't do the like remedial pet scans anymore oh, they, good. which i like because it's a little freaky when they pull out the suitcase that says biohazard and <laughs> the nurse is wearing a full suit to inject you you're like oh cool it's a little <laughs> radioactive okay little radioactive so it's like to like not have to do that every year now <laughs> <laughs> so that's good yeah 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 so as we wrap up here what what's next what do you, what do you tell, I mean, there's a whole, so many more stories I want to go into at some point, but I think those are, yeah. we'll have to save those for another time, but yeah. how you and your friends um, get together and, and create community is an astonishing storyline, mm. and um, to dig more deeply into even any one of these things, like the basket and the fibers and things, sure. each of those is just a storyline, but, sure. but uh, are you, what, what's next for you as you settle into life in your tiny home with... Bessie the cow. Mm -hmm. Clover, actually, Clover. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I call all cows. Bessie. I know she's a Bessie. She's a Bessie. Cow. <laughs> she looks like a Bessie That's too, funny. by the way. She kind of does. I know she's a, she's so beautiful. Her brown. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's just the most gorgeous creature. Um, well, I mean, what's next? I mean, for in the immediate future, it's just the the daily rhythms of life on the farm. So it's moving the sheep and moving the cows, and you know all all of that mm -hmm. um and for me personally i just started making braided rugs that's like my latest obsession so i'm just gonna keep doing that for a little bit using old clothes from salvation well Army yeah i just or? got all these old sheets and i was like hmm. i'm not using these for anything and you know space in the tiny house is limited and you have to be very intentional about what you <laughs> have Everything. in there so i was like but i don't want to get rid of them and i like the colors so i just made a one braided rug and Loved it so much that now I'm replacing all my rugs with huh. braided ones. Oh, cool. So that's the, like, very immediate plan. Well, <laughs> if 
if we wanted to put together some kind of a skills workshop, though, uh, or oh, skills sure, fair, sure. where people could come and maybe learn some things, would you be down for that? Yeah, absolutely. Whatever, whatever people want to learn, could do some like people want to learn like fire by friction. That honestly is like maybe the most empowering skill I've ever learned. Mm-hmm. And I am, by the way, I I know how to do it, but I am not a master by any stretch. Um, there's just it's one of those things where you tweak any one of the variables and it just throws the whole thing off kilter so you have to do it a long time to learn all those variables Mm -hmm. um but i but it's doable love it and it's doable and if people want to learn like the basics of it it just it like you said with the shoelace story it's just so nice to just walk out in the woods and be like i could just start a fire right here with my boot if Mm -hmm. i wanted to so Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever basket weaving i don't care yep fermenting basket weaving sounds good fermenting yep cheese making sure could we make cheese sure you just need enough milk to sort of pull it off yeah no you absolutely could yeah great a few hours all right well erica martinson so good Chris to have martinson. you here i know it's fun now, now people have a little bit of a sense of what the house house oh, was like a little taste, <laughs> a little, little taste. <laughs> there are more stories oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks for coming in i appreciate it yeah, Dad, and, thanks um, for having me. Let's do this again. Cool.